Babylon is seductive, <coughs> sneaky, and doomed. <clears throat> She's the great prostitute riding jockey on the beast of Rome, and particularly of the Roman emperors, who demanded that they be worshipped as God. Uh, we met Babylon back in chapter 17 of the book of Revelation, but now in chapter 18, her final judgment is declared. Uh, Babylon is not the same as Rome, but she's very much a part of Rome. Uh, she is the, the, the culture, the, the driving force, the, the very essence of the place. Uh, Babylon is that spirit of godless extravagance, self-indulgent idolatry that so happily rides on the back of any city that sets itself up in opposition to God. She is the spirit of Rome. The spirit of New York, spirit of Sydney, spirit of any other place of self-indulgent power that you'd like to name. She is evil personified. In Revelation 18, at last, judgment is proclaimed over evil personified as Babylon. And this justice is actually proclaimed in the form of a lament a song of deep sorrow and regret. If you've joined us for the first time, welcome. Uh, you've arrived well into a series on the book of Revelation. It's, it's a book that is filled with apocalyptic imagery, with wild sort of visions and schemes that actually are quite understandable as you gain an understanding of the kind of key, the code. It's no great mystery, but it just helps us understand what we're, what's being said to us. Mostly the book of Revelation has been about the present. But in this final section that began at chapter 17, we actually do now start to glimpse the future, the vision of the future. And this lament song that we're looking at today in chapter 18, it's a little hard to get a hold of at first because lament is not popular. Uh, you don't often hear songs of lament on the radio or on people's Spotify playlist. That's because they're funeral songs, right? Uh, it's, this is the music of bitter mourning, profound sadness. When they were translating the Bible into English, we didn't really have a word for woe. So we just stole the Greek word and rewrote the letters, woe. It's, it's, it's a word for moaning and for groaning. It's, it's, it comes from the heart. And it expresses deep tragedy. It, alas, just won't do. This is woe. Grief and sobbing kind of punctuate a lament. And Revelation 18 is a lament over the fall and the judgment of Babylon. It's a tragic and it's a painful part, in a sense, of God's story. And really worth our attention. So if you don't already, please do have your Bible open on your lap, Revelation 18. We're going to work our way through it. As we dive into the detail of it, you see in verse 1 a very impressive angel, great authority and splendor, begins this song of lament. And in verse 2 declares, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become the dwelling of demons. A haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her. The merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. 
did you notice that that opening refrain, fallen, fallen is Babylon, it's spoken in the past tense. It is, even though this is a, a future event, it is so certain to happen, we may as well speak of it as though it happened in the past. Babylon will certainly fall. And so this lament tells that the power and the seductions of this world will end. Great and terrible will be their collapse. How tragic this will be for those who joined in Babylon's adulteries and grew rich on her luxuries. They too will be brought down with her. And then in verse 4, we hear another voice from heaven. Presumably the voice of God, I think. For he says, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Come out from her. That's, that's the message that God has for the people in this situation. It, it actually takes us back to Genesis chapter 18. You know the story of Lot and his family who are to leave Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, God wants to rescue them out from the, you know, before this sort of hail of fire and brimstone comes to destroy this place of evil. And so God says to him, leave, run. Don't look back. Get out. And so Lot and his family make a physical exit from their doomed city. So how do we separate ourselves from Babylon since this prostitute riding a beast is not actually a place, right? But is in fact our culture. How do we leave the spirit of selfish pride and arrogant debauchery? That's, that's really the key to the passage today. For, for all of its judgment and tragedy, we're actually meant to respond to this lament by leaving Babylon. It's not a gloating over the tragedy of evil getting its justice at last. It's not about that at all. The lamenting is meant to propel us out and away from the sin of Babylon before judgment falls. And to build that sense of urgency, the next little section, verses 9 to 19, actually just shows us various groups of people who are left completely devastated by Babylon's fall. It, this is the bit. This is like what's left over when the bottle is empty. This is when the chemical high turns to darkness. This is when the thrill is gone and emptiness is all that fills your senses. First of all, we see the kings of the earth cry out. Verses nine and ten. Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon! In one hour. Your doom has come. Suddenly it's all over. Luxury and indulgence are exposed as horrendous crimes against the poor. Quite rightly, the kings of the earth stand terrified as to what they see. Despite her riches and her grandeur, Babylon's fall will be over in an hour, he says. This is actually reminiscent of the actual fall of Babylon in October 539 BC. We read about this just last year in the book of Daniel. Okay, You remember um, you know, the, hand, the writing on the wall? Uh, Darius the Mede 
overran the city of Babylon in one single night. King Belshazzar was partying away while the Medes invaded the city. Very sneakily, all they did was they diverted the river. The river used to run under these massive high walls that was protecting Babylon. Darius the Mede just diverted the river, waited for it to dry up, and the army went straight under the wall and took over the city very quickly, very simply, in one night, killing Belshazzar in the process. The Babylonians thought, our defences are impenetrable, but they were ruined in a night. So just as the city of Babylon famously fell so quickly in just a few hours, so the judgment against evil will be swift. Next, verses 11 through 17, the merchants of the earth, they weep and they mourn over Babylon's fall. Their their goods and their schemes have suddenly become worthless. So they too stand far off and they wail, woe. Woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls in one hour. Such great wealth has been brought to ruin. And then, uh, as the song develops, verses 18 and 19, the sea captains and the sailors join in the song. And they mourn and they say, Woe, woe to you, great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour, she's been brought to ruin. So the kings of the earth are weeping, the merchants are weeping, and now the sea captains and the sailors are weeping. But they don't weep in repentance. Did you notice that? They lament and they mourn because they can no longer trade. They can no longer make money. The the, the party's over for them. They can no longer indulge themselves in all of the evil and the excesses and the debauchery. They're not weeping for Babylon. They're weeping because of everything that they have lost in her. So what you see here is actually a a grief and a sadness for sin that does not lead to repentance. You should never confuse the two, you know. Um, Just because we're sorry over sin... We're sorry for what happened. Sorry we got found out. Just being sorry is actually not repentance. Turning away from sin and back to God is what repentance is. So real repentance starts with deep sadness for our sin and then takes us to turn back to God, confessing our sin and by his grace determining never to go back there again. That's repentance. And so this great song of lament and sorrow over the fall of Babylon doesn't actually result in repentance and forgiveness as it might. In verse 20, something very strange happens. In the middle of all of this darkness and woe comes a burst of light. In verse 20, it seems that it's another voice that interrupts the lament and puts an end to it. And it calls people to rejoice. Verse 20, rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, you apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. Remember, we already know from earlier in the book of Revelation, God's people are actually sealed and protected. They're not going to be part of this judgment, this final destruction. But now, as judgment is declared, they're actually to rejoice. 
Sometimes you, you hear it said, look, you know, if God was really good and if God was actually powerful, he'd do something with all of the evil and suffering in the world. Well, here it is. This is it. The time for repentance is now finished. And God is now acting to end evil in all its forms. Beginning with Babylon. If you're going to begin with anything, you begin with Babylon. Right? That, that spirit that is self-indulgent and power-hungry and pleasure-seeking. If you're going to get rid of evil, you start right there. And so God does. And so God's justice is actually a good thing. It's only to be celebrated. Rejoice over the judgment of evil is assured. And that's really what the rest of this chapter is all about. So verse 21 and following. Verse 21, a mighty angel picks up a great big boulder and hurls it into the sea. The judgment of Babylon is being symbolically enacted there. In, in Revelation, whenever you see the sea swirling and raging, it, it's a picture of chaos, of unordered power. And this sort of hurling of the boulder indicates violence and destruction and the complete devastation of Babylon. And the thing to notice here in verse 21 is that it, this judgment is divinely enacted. In other words, the world doesn't blow itself up by accident, you know, like a lab experiment gone wrong. That's, it's, it's, not a, it's not a surprising accident. This is the work of God to bring judgment. The action of the angel indicates that it is by God's agency. So that's Revelation chapter 18. It's, it's a message that says Babylon will certainly fall suddenly and violently. Knowing that, we must come out of her. We must resist and abandon her seductive ways. God's people can have no part in the worship of the beast. Now, the first recipients of this book of Revelation in the first century, that was their chief temptation the chief pressure was for them worship emperor as god okay, that's that's the beast image but babylon continues and she's no less seductive or persuasive today the one thing that i would love you to take away from this passage in revelation 18 is to recognize there is an incredible risk in underselling the need to come out from Babylon. You know, I, I think that there's a, a tendency for us to say, you know what, I, th I think I can manage this. I think I've got this. Uh, you know, I, I can play the game on Babylon's terms and I think I can win. Uh, we risk thinking that we can live in Babylon and not be infected by the virus. You know, Jesus prayed for us he prayed, Father, I'm leaving these guys in the world, but they are not of the world. So really, this verse 4 is the key. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins. That's what the passage is. That's the crux of it. And the question I have is, do you really think that we do need to do something here? Is there actually a need to come out? Is there a problem you know, sharing in the sins of our culture could just mean that we are, well, we're actually just sinning in the same way that everybody else is, or it could mean that we've chosen to turn a blind eye to sin. You know, we could, we could endorse sin, or we could just 
accept it, or we could just not do anything about it. And all of those would mean that in some way we are participating in that sin. We may not be resisting it. We are not trying to protect those who are at risk. We may not be rescuing those. I want to pull out a contemporary kind of example of what this sharing in sin looks like. Pornography is rife in our culture. The people who promote it or who just simply facilitate its transmission... They say, look, this is, a, this is a, a harmless recreation for consenting adults. Uh, it's not hurting anybody. It's, it's, it's a legal business avenue for the sex industry and it's valid entertainment. And that industry in 2011 was worth $500 million per year in Australia. How could something so popular be wrong? Now, not so long ago, I could just kind of leave it at that and everybody would go, yeah, well, I know what's wrong. But just in case there's any doubt, let me, just, let me answer the question. What's wrong with pornography? Well, apart from the obvious hurt to marriages, whether you are married now or you will be in the future, and the harm to relationships and the inescapable link to all kinds of abuse and the psychological harm to yourself, apart from all of that, the pornography user is sharing in the sins of the sex slave trafficker upon which that industry depends. It is sharing in the sins of the child abusers and the traffickers that cross all boundaries of the industry. There is no such thing as an ethical pornography producer. And worse, there is the utter desperation of drug dependency, generational poverty and abuse that makes working in that industry seem like a, a better option, the lesser of two evils. So he's an industry that profits from the misery, from slavery and from the abuse of people. And if every pornography user decided one day, you know what, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to stop fanning the flames and in fact I'm going to take the oxygen away from that. The market dries up. That's what coming out of Babylon does. We no longer participate in her sins. Now I've just taken that industry as an example to illustrate the principle of sharing in the sins of Babylon. We, we are so easily entangled in networks of sin. Let me go to a trickier issue. Greed. I wonder how entangled we are with our wealth. I mean, does it actually hinder us from following Christ? You remember the, the rich young ruler, the guy who comes to Jesus and Jesus says, I want you to go and sell everything, then come and follow me. Selling everything is not a requirement for becoming a Christian. Poverty is not necessarily a virtue, Right? But it does make things a whole lot easier when it comes to following Christ and being unentangled in this world. I tried an experiment this last week. I decided to use myself as a guinea pig and I wanted to see how greedy I really am. Let me tell you what I did. Last Tuesday's lotto prize was worth $40 million. Saw the sign outside of Roseville News Agency there. So I went inside to the, uh, to the news agency 
And uh, just before I did, I, you know, I, I looked both ways to make sure no one was looking, and I went inside, and I bought a ticket. Um, that was a bit embarrassing because I, didn't, I asked the lady, I said, can I buy a ticket for Lotto? And she said, great, you know, which system do you want? Apparently there's like a million different ways, it's, it's, it's complicated. And I just said, look, I want to spend 10 bucks. And she said, you've bought one game, I think it was. Anyway, and so I walk out of there with my ticket in my pocket and I, and I wait because Tuesday night is the draw for 40 million bucks. And I wondered what would I do with that if I won. And the first 10 million was going straight to the church building fund. <laughs> Problem solved, straight up. Job done. And then I thought about all of the missionaries and all of the ministries that would surely benefit. God must want to bless me and his kingdom with a $40 million lotto win, right? And so I'm walking back from the, from the news agency back to the office here, sneaking, you know, pocket now. And I hadn't got back to the office when I thought, I wonder if I'd keep any of that for myself. You know, look, what I could do, I could just pay off some debt, right? I've got a lot of debt. I could pay that off and that, surely God wouldn't mind that. That would be good. Wednesday morning came and the waiting was over and so I checked both ways, walked into the news agency. I was, actually, I was trembling a little bit. I'm kind of shaking. Um, and I asked the lady, how do I find out how much money I've won? And, do you know there was actual adrenaline pumping in my system? My heart rate was a little bit elevated. And I was going to win something for sure, right? And so there's this scanner thing that they have sitting on the bench there and you get your ticket and you, and you put your, your thing in it uh, to find out if you've won and to know I've put my thing in. I won nothing. I was disappointed. I felt hollow and empty. And I also felt a little bit dirty. Because greed is an ugly, sneaky monster. And it is a sin that I need to flee from. And it is built deep into the foundations of Australian culture. It's kind of baked into the pudding before we started. It's there. How do I know this? Because last year, Australians lost $24 billion gambling. That's a big number. And there are these other guys who are really smart guys and they survey gaming and gambling across the world, H2 Gambling Capital, says that in 2016, Australians lost more money per person than any other developed nation. So on average, Australians lost 990 US dollars per person in 2016. That's number one place in the world, $990. Guess who came second? It was Singapore. And the second place comes in at $650 per person. That's daylight to second. This is so much a part of our culture. We are the greediest nation by far. Now, did you see what I did there? I just equated greed with gambling. I did that, right? Um, I think that greed is the driver for our gambling. I know that it's the dopamine hit that keeps us gambling. That's, you know, but why is so much at stake? Why the rush of adrenaline? Because we want to win. Because the money actually does matter. Please, this morning, do not hear me say that any person who buys a lottery ticket is sinning. Don't hear me say that. 
And please don't hear me say that we should all race out and buy lottery tickets so we can pay for the church. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just wanting to show us how insidiously greed works in our hearts. It sneaks up and it grips our hearts. It doesn't matter how, mo- how the money comes in. It doesn't really matter. You might be a very hard-working person in a well-paid job to get your money. Or you might get an inheritance. Or you might like games of chance. Or that you might have an amazing investment strategy. Okay? It doesn't matter how the money comes. We are suckers for greed. On the other side of greed is generosity. Now, it's been mentioned up here before, and I won't give you all the details, but, you know, 2016 census, Karingai local government area, we are the most advantaged people in Australia. We are smart, we are wealthy, we are connected, and comparatively stingy compared with good old Castlemaine down in Victoria. They're the generous guys, and they do that every year. According to the ATO, we give 0.7 of a percent of our income in tax-deductible giving. We don't, you don't need the statistics. See, we just need to look honestly in our own hearts. Babylon clutches at our hearts through our wallets. Statistics aren't important anyway, and they're actually not a very good indicator because lots of people give very, very generously, non-tax-deductibly, to support St Andrews to make this whole thing work. That's... It's a great thing, okay? It's not about the numbers. It's about what's going on for you in your heart. Has Babylon seduced us and we didn't even know it? Calls for some careful reflection. And I think it's a great thing, that verse on the screen. Careful reflection is what we need. What we really need, actually, is an exit strategy, How are we going to get our hearts out of Babylon? Some of the most helpful words from this come from Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 11 is a catalogue of all of the great heroes of faith, all these inspiring people who have, through faith, done incredible things at great cost. And they form a great cloud of witnesses who now look on at us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. Let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What's our exit strategy? How are we going to come out of Babylon? We run with perseverance with our eyes fixed on Jesus. It's all about where you're looking, right? Lot had a wife and as they were fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's wife decided that she would turn back and have a look. We don't know if it was just to, you know, one last glance or if it was actually, I'd really rather go back there because, you know, my home and stuff's there. We don't know why she turned and looked. But that was her end. When you are fleeing something, you've got to look where you're going. 
Pay close attention to Jesus. Remember him on the cross. Consider the opposition that he endured from sinners. Take our focus away from ourselves. Put it on for Jesus. Because he will give us true sight and perspective. Babylon is seductive, sneaky and doomed. Come out from her and do not share in her sins. Instead, fix your eyes on Jesus, for he is the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Will you pray with me? Now, God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that the victory is yours and that it is certain. Thank you that your judgment of evil and the termination of evil is certain. And that it will be sudden. And that its end will be brief. We thank you for saving us from evil through the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us your grace that we might focus our attention upon him. That he might lead us in this journey of faith, this race, as our pioneer. And that along the way he might perfect our faith. That we may be loyal and true and given fully to him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.